0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: What's up, saucer heads? This is Ryan Sprague from the Summer in the Skies podcast, and I have an exclusive offer for you to come join me at AlienCon Los Angeles. AlienCon brings together UFO researchers, the stars of ancient aliens and science fiction fan favorites. But most importantly, it brings us all together as like-minded people to talk about these topics. I'll be giving lectures and taking part in numerous panel discussions with some of the most popular UFO and unexplained podcasts out there today. And don't forget to check out live podcast recordings of Somewhere in the Skies and Unknown, hosted by Jason McClellan. It's going to be a jam-packed weekend you won't soon forget and you get to be a part of. The event is June 21st, 22nd, and 23rd at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Tickets are on sale right now at thealiencon.com. And if you use the promo code SKIES at checkout, you'll get an exclusive discount on all tickets. Again, use the promo code SKIES. For guest info, special offers, full schedule, and tickets, visit thealiencon.com. And I'll see you there.
0: This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague.
1: Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. Well, I am on the road again doing some top-secret projects, but I did want to bring you an episode this week. So, I decided to pull this one out of the archives over at the Our Strange Skies podcast, hosted by Rob Kristofferson. And when Rob Kristofferson is on the show, you know it's going to be a UFO happy hour. But this time, Rob interviews me, all about my book, what I think about UFOs in general, In what cases I turn the hard skeptics to. So sit back, crack open a cold beer, or a glass of wine, or grab a coffee. No one's judging. And let's begin this volume of UFO Happy Hour.
2: Ryan, how you doing, buddy?
1: I'm doing great, man. Hey, listen, I love what you're doing. I've been following your work ever since you started the podcast, and uh, it's such an honor, pleasure to finally be on your show. I had you on mine a little while ago, so yeah, full circle here, so honored, pleasure.
2: Yeah, man, uh, happy to have you on. Definitely one of the first people that I thought about when I was going to do this, so I definitely appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and talk for a little bit. In the uh, interviews that I've heard you do and stuff, you kind of got into UFO research after having a personal experience of your own when you were a teenager. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and kind of how it affected your life? Because your book really dives into the aftermath of the sighting and how it affected people.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I... I, uh, I'm i a playwright, first and foremost. Uh, I lived in New York City for 10 years, and that was my bag, man. That was my bread and butter, writing characters, you know, how they, how they live, how they breathe, how they talk, how they react, and, you know, the aftermath, what changes a character throughout the, the process of a play. So that's always been the way I wanted to go with my UFO research, and that kind of is how I... I got involved with this. I had my quote-unquote origin story when I was 12 <laughs> years old, my my Peter Parker moment, I guess. I, uh, this was up in your – kind of your neck of the woods. Uh, this yep. was in central New York, right on the border of – New York and Canada I was on a nighttime fishing excursion off of a dock uh, at a motel I was staying at with my parents we were away for the weekend and you know it's uh, it's 1995 I've got my Discman I'm listening to uh <laughs> what was it uh Dookie by Green Day
2: oh wow
1: <laughs> yeah man and I was by myself I love doing stuff like that just listening to music and either writing drawing uh or fishing as it were <laughs> that night and uh so I'm just you know I'm reeling my line in and I see this reflection in the water and it's you know kind of kind kind of triangular and it's like three white lights I'm like oh that looks pretty cool I thought it was in the water at first but then I uh closer I looked I realized it was a reflection so I naturally look up and there it was man i mean it was it was a triangular formation three kind of orange white lights and this huge red basketball shaped hazy thing in the middle and it's just floating there and uh it. it th- there was no solid structure, not that I could see. Uh, I. I couldn't see the stars behind whatever the formation was, but I did not see any mechanisms or or solid structure. But it was just like hanging there silently, and uh, that that really affected me. All I could hear was kind of you know like the water hitting the dock, and uh, I was scared. I was kind of just frozen there, and finally, I'm able to get, you know, these little squeals out of my 12-year-old voice to my dad. He's inside the motel watching a Yankees game, and he's not going to be leaving that anytime soon. And I'm yelling, I'm yelling, the thing starts coasting over the water towards canada and finally i get my dad's attention he comes out and as he's coming out to look at the thing it's just making its way over the water towards canada and it kind of disappeared right at where the water met the sky, the night sky. And I don't know if... This this always kind of bothered me. I don't know if it just disappeared out of sight or if it actually submerged into the water. But my dad, he did see the tail end of it. He saw the two white lights in the back of this thing. So he tells me it's just a plane, you know, doing his his due diligence as a father, calming me down. But again, dude, like I was 12 years old. Even I knew you know, silent, no sound of propulsion, how fast and how slow I should say this thing was moving and how big it was. It was not any plane I'd ever seen. So yeah, absolutely terrified me. I became obsessed. I had nightmares about it for years after that. And uh, that's kind of how it all began, man. I started taking out books on UFOs, cryptids, paranormal, and uh, that's it. I, I was hooked after that.
2: And it's always kind of interesting when you go back and you relive the sighting there and in, in just memory and like, I felt this emotion, I felt that emotion. Do you think that it was just the fact that you were seeing the craft or do you think the craft was kind of inducing that fear? Because there are people that talk about seeing craft like this and they hear this hum and then all of a sudden they are fearful or whatever. So do you think it was just you reacting in the moment or do you think it might've been something else? Maybe the craft itself.
1: A little of both. I've researched a lot of cases like you just mentioned where there was physiological effects and psychological effects happening at the same time. Uh, For me personally, I didn't hear a hum, but I felt a hum. Like, I felt this vibration going from the back of my neck down my spine and kind of into my stomach. Again, like, I don't know if this was adrenaline or fear, but I was definitely scared. I was definitely scared. (laughs) You know, I ripped my headphones off. My discman goes flying. And just so I could, like, hear what was going on. And when I heard nothing, that's when I was like, what the hell is going on? And, uh... I, I I can't tell you, man. I can't tell you if it was making me feel anything, but it was this weird mixture of fear and uh, and calmness all at once. I I wasn't, it wasn't, you know, flight or fright. It was more of just. Stay there. Keep looking at it. I know you're scared, but you have to see what this thing does, whatever the hell it is. So there were physiological effects, whatever that was inside of me vibrating. But other than that, I can't really tell you what else I was feeling in the moment. I just wanted to remember it.
2: Yeah, I totally understand because there was an experience I had like three years ago almost now. And like I keep going over it again and again in in my head. And I'm like, well... Why did I react the way that I reacted in the moment? Because uh, I had a phone on me and I didn't take a picture of it. What? That, why didn't I want to do that? And like I, I experienced mine with a friend, and uh, I, I got to try and, and uh, reconnect with him just to get his uh, impression of it. But yeah, it's it's one of those baffling things where it's just this thing wants you to see it, and it's kind of inducing emotions in you, but. It's, such a baffling phenomenon that it it does drive people to research this stuff, so uh, I commend you, man. I probably would have like ran off the <laughs> talk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I mean, don't get me wrong, I wanted to, but I'm telling you, man, like something kept me frozen there. Again, I don't know, maybe just just scared, but uh but it happened and uh you know, I do look back and be like, Wow, oh, what could I have done? Should I have like reported it? Um, you know, we talked to the owner of the motel the next day. We're like, Hey dude, hell is above your motel like what's (laughs) going on but he he really had nothing to say he's like oh yeah people report ufos here all the time i'm like what what are you talking about like and but that was really about it um and i do (laughs) regret that but again i was 12 i wasn't into ufos yet i didn't know about mufon or you know reporting it to the police or the faa i just i saw it it changed my life instantly and
2: uh rest is sort of history And from that history comes forth a book, Somewhere in the Skies. Your book begins in a bar in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and it starts with a bartender named Tyler, and he starts talking about his experience seeing the Phoenix Lights. This is kind of that catalyst moment that pushes you in the direction to write this thing, what was it about that encounter with Tyler that really made you want to write this book?
1: So that was that really was a pivotal moment in terms of my 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 writing aspect of the whole UFO research thing i guess i uh i i was on my way to do a you know like a, a mini interview with my mentor peter robbins i'm sure a lot of your listeners know that name well um but <laughs> he, i was nervous man i needed some some uh some whiskey in me that's kind of my go-to <laughs> bourbon in specific but uh so yeah i stopped into this bar and i don't know if you've ever had that 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 experience where the UFO thing just sort of comes up in conversation, uh, maybe happenstance, maybe forced, but, um, it's always a debate in your head. Like, do I do it? Like, -hmm. do I take that leap? What what's what's going to come of it? I mean, I've lost a lot of second dates, you know, bringing this thing (laughs) up in the past. God bless my girlfriend now; she loves it. But um, (laughs) but yeah, it can be a really big icebreaker, right? Whether you know on a date or just in regular conversation. And you know, luckily for me, it came up kind of kind of naturally. I, I in the book, I kind of explain how it all went down but Tyler was such a cool dude he he was so excited to talk about it and that really that really inspired me, man, to sit there in the middle of Manhattan with a complete stranger and have an extremely intimate conversation about the Phoenix Lights. I I interviewed some witnesses of that event uh, in the past, but not to that extent and not face to face. So that was the moment, I think, being face to face with the witness, seeing how they recalled an event and... Uh, Whenever I did interview people, I I would write down, like, how their voice sounded, uh, you know, what... what what the tone was in their voice these were things I I learned and was trained as a playwright like how do you do those sorts of things so I'm kind of analyzing him as he's telling me this and I had no doubt he was telling me the truth you know I'm no speech pathologist I'm no you know human lie detector but (laughs) he was sweating he was you know he was animated telling me about what he'd seen how it uh, floated through the air how big it was and that was the moment where I was like I have to I got to do this. I want to meet witnesses. I want to see how they react and I want to know how it affected their lives and that's kind of kind of what I went with with the book that was my approach is let's let's implement my playwriting skills of characters and induce that into my research not creating characters but kind of taking that idea and and focusing on the people having the events rather than the event itself.
2: Yeah, and that's Kind of one of the most fascinating aspects of this all. It's not the experience, it's the experiencer themselves and how they come away and how it changes them. And it's kind of amazing that nobody's really done this before. We're like over 70 years into UFO research and nobody has really done this. It's always been the story or the report or what happened it's never what happens after so i commend you dude uh great job on uh, the subject of this it's definitely a book that i recommend now for people to go to if people are interested in ufos it's definitely one that i recommend up front how did you come to find all the people that you interviewed and how long did it take to gather all the information and put it into a book
1: it I'd say from like the first interview to literally, you know, send it off to the publisher, uh Maybe about two and a half years or so. I mean, it, it was not short, but it was not long either. I, I did some traveling to go meet people, uh, countless nights over Skype and on the phone. Uh, my Verizon bill was higher than it's ever been. <laughs> and uh, still on a family plan. So thank you, Dad, for that. Uh, but yeah, man, I, it was an amazing journey. Um, and just, you know, I, I, went and stayed a week with some abductees. I, I flew out to Arizona to meet with some, some witnesses for this. I, I went to, um, a couple other places and interviewed people face to face. And it was just, it was an incredible experience. You know, I kind of wanted to take that journalistic approach and that boots on the ground approach and get out there and talk to the people. So, you know, Skype, Facebook, uh, online forums, these were all very valuable assets to me that a lot of researchers didn't have in the past. So, you know, God bless the internet for all it's, it's good and bad. It really helped me with this.
2: Man, you really you really mind for it too cuz what you get in the book is like a really wide swath of people and experiences that run the gamut from just seeing a UFO like a, a CE1 or a, a nocturnal light kind of sighting all the way up to uh, abductions and it's definitely well-rounded and another thing that I really love about the book what surprised you the most while doing the research and doing the interviews? I
1: think what really surprised me was just the the spectrum of reaction and aftermath. You know, when I first set out to write the book, I was like, oh, I'm going to find this one linear pattern to all the cases. And uh, there we go. Boom. I've solved the UFO mystery. I did it. Yay.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um that was the stupidest thing I ever could have assumed. But, um, <laughs> yeah, um, it it was definitely like the spectrum of, you know, someone has a UFO sighting or a CE-12345 even, um, <laughs> and it impacts them greatly. It changes their entire life. Whereas I interviewed uh a guy who had a sighting on his way to his first military job and it was a classic saucer shaped craft that stopped his car that circled around him that took off and uh he literally said to me oh yeah just got in my car went to a bar and went to my job i mean that that right there man astounded me i i thought (laughs) oh wait like no matter what, this is a profound experience and it's going to change your life forever. For this guy, no, it it really didn't. He had it, he thought it was pretty cool, and uh, maybe it opened his eyes a little, but it did not change him in the profound ways I had expected. And as for other people, I talked to a guy who had an abduction experience, Michael Carter, uh, the guy who became a, a minister of a church after he was aboard a craft apparently talking to these white alien beings and they showed him an image of prayer hands with a lightning bolt through it. This was his sort of, uh, you know, I guess, translation in his own mind that he had to pursue faith healing, he had to infuse his UFO encounters with his spiritualism, became a minister, wrote some books on UFOs in the Bible. So I mean, that changed the entire course of that dude's life. So it really ran a spectrum. And I think that's what was most surprising to me is, this is messy, Uh, it's profound, it's mundane, it's scary, it's beautiful, and it's everything in between. And I I think that's what's beautiful about all of it is we're all going to take whatever we experience a different way and either infuse that, embrace it into our lives, or reject it and deny it and move on. So yeah, that's kind of what surprised me the most is just how messy this melting pot really is.
2: Yeah, it really is. And I think Some of the interesting interviews that you did involve, especially when you're talking about the ones that involve interactions with beings of some kind, like Claudette Huber's case, that's not any kind of alien being that I've ever really heard of. It's just it's short it's it's got darker skin with and it's wearing a black flowing robe
1: (laughs) yeah dude Uh, this that one really surprised me that was one of the individuals i met in person uh and it's kind of an interesting story so i met her at a ufo conference and uh i asked her i knew she had an experience and she'd never spoken about about it to anyone and i said hey You know, would you be willing to talk about this with me and just kind of see where it goes? I'll turn a recorder on, but I will never let it share it with anyone. And it took some time and some debate and she decided to do it. So I had dinner with her and her husband and, you know, she broke down into tears when she said, I want to share my story with you. And her husband's there holding her hand, supporting her. And she uh, she came up to my hotel room. We sat there for over an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and she divulged everything to me. And again, it was one of those pivotal moments where I was like, this is what I have to do. I have to focus on the person. Person and let them tell the story, not me. Let them tell me what they saw, what they experienced and how they felt, what they think it was. So with Claudette, yeah, she was very young when this happened. She saw these weird beings, like you said, almost monk-like in appearance, uh, dark crackly skin, um, very, you know, moist, almost as if the air was very, very humid. uh, And it was weird. You'd never really heard about this other than maybe some of the beings that Whitley Strieber once described seeing. Uh, Mm -hmm. But this actually happened, uh, Claudette's event before that came out. So... She had a trigger event later in life when her boyfriend at the time was watching Communion, the movie, that horrible, god awful movie. <laughs> <laughs> For all its faults, I still love it. It's a cool classic. But she saw the being in that movie and she flipped out. You know, she cowered behind the couch and started crying. Boyfriend's like, What's going on? What's going on? And she couldn't tell him. You know, couldn't tell him for many years later. So, again, a lot of this is not what you would expect. This was not the little gray beings with big black eyes, big head. Uh, This was a monk, blue and black in appearance, and wearing some kind of ancient robe, man. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. And I don't pretend to, either. This is what she experienced, and I'm going to relate that the best way I can as the journalist and the author.
2: And I think what's interesting is to say... Just in the way it reads, she only had like one experience with these beings, right?
1: Yes apparently you know i have spoken to her a couple times after that and she said she's had some other weird experiences but nothing as dramatic as this so that's another big thing is you know some of these people it's a lifelong thing it happens it's reoccurring for others it's a singular event so again there's very few patterns that can be made with all of this but you know we're gonna keep trying and uh we're just gonna keep recording what we can when it happens and if it happens
2: that's kind of one of those aspects that we don't get a, a view of most of the time because when uh, we're talking about abductions, it's always a lifelong event or uh, at least most of the life and it's always it runs in families and all this stuff and like there, there are definitely people in your book that kind of defy that a little bit. Yeah, like you said, Michael Carter, he his experiences only lasted like what about six months or so?
1: Yeah. Within the span of six months, he had a ton of experiences. So again, whatever is happening, no matter what it is, aliens, uh, some higher power, interdimensional. I don't know, man. Again, I don't pretend to know what the abduction phenomenon is or who's in control of it. But uh, I mean, my God, they say like they'll they won't they won't do to you what you can't handle. But I don't know how that man can still be sane after that many experiences. Uh, He did tell me that he went under therapy after a lot of this and, uh, and kind of stepped away from it for a little while to live his life. But yeah, the whole running in families thing, I know you've, you're a big proponent of that idea that that seems to be one of the only patterns we can make with these things. And I, I agree with you Uh, while I didn't find many, of those cases, I know they're out there, and there must be something to it. I just, in my own research, I haven't tapped into that quite yet.
2: And, you know, it's a phenomenon that constantly reforms and constantly reshapes itself. So it's it's interesting to see this wide swath. They were... T- Definitely, uh, aspects of that book that I, I really just enjoyed. And I'm going to say that like a billion times because I really did. It. I love the hell out of your book. Man.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I, I I swear to your listeners, I didn't come on here just for that. <laughs> but no, dude, I really appreciate <laughs> that. Like again, I just I just want to get these stories out there for individuals who who just need like. They want their voices to be heard. You know, they're not Whitley Strieber. They're not these these big cases like Rendlesham or Allagash or anything like that. They're they're people who had they're everyday people. That's that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with the whole thing. Is this is your next door neighbor? This is your you know your professor in college. This is your law enforcement officer. This is uh, the mailman. I mean it isn't some that cliche of like some hick in the backwoods having an experience. Those days are over. And honestly, they never truly were, uh, that, that cliche. So I, I appreciate the broad spectrum of individuals having experiences and coming forward, having the courage to give their real names. That was another big thing in the book is I wanted no pseudonyms. I wanted these people to own it, to embrace it. And to get out there and that's a huge, huge risk for them. So if any of them are listening, I always say thank you. Thank you for having the courage to do that because the ramification to coming forward with this, as you know, it can go one of two ways. Either people are like interesting, cool, or they're like, hey. You just lost your job or, hey, you know, we're going to ridicule the hell out of you after this. So, again, I I applaud each and every person in the book and who are not in the book as well, who come forward with their real names on these things. I think that's really the only way it's going to be normalized.
2: Yeah, I I absolutely believe that. And for all the criticism I throw to. To the Stars Academy and and the New York Times article. Hopefully, you know, at least we're on the precipice of kind of reshaping the image of UFO research. I definitely hope that's a step in the right direction.
1: I I think Um, so. Yeah, I agree.
2: Aside from the uh, one story that takes place in my hometown that you were a part of, uh, the one story that just scared the daylights out of me was Patty Blackburn's story and her daughter's. Uh, Could you just kind of go into it, man, and and talk a little bit about it? Because it is reads like an abduction case, but it's not an abduction case. Yeah, It's, it's so very strange.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. Again, yeah, this is one that really stood out to me. And I'm still working with Patty on this, because I'll tell you what, like, this is definitely one of those reoccurring event things that's still sort of going on. So uh yeah, this was definitely one of the more dramatic stories. Uh This happened <laughs> in Michigan. uh And it was in 2006. Uh, Right over Lake Michigan, she lived right near the water. Again, that's another big thing. A lot of these Mm -hmm. things happened over water. Um, Yeah. I don't know what to make of that, but we can definitely talk about that. Anyways, uh, she's heading out to walk her dogs one night, and uh, she she could feel something was sort of off. You know, the dogs, they wouldn't leave the front porch. They're, you know, they're whimpering. And she makes her way down the front lawn to uh, to try to get him to come with her, you know, and that's when she noticed that there is a black triangle floating right above the tree line over her property, and it kind of stopped her dead in her tracks, and... Yeah, obviously she couldn't believe what she's seen, so she, kind of like me at age 12, she starts yelling for someone to come see this, you know, make sure it's actually <laughs> happening to her. And her her younger daughter, Jennifer, she comes outside, and Jennifer comes out, you know, they're both kind of staring up at this thing. The daughter did see it, and it starts slowly creeping closer until it's literally directly above them. Uh, what, what I... What I kind of found most interesting about this one, though, was that Patty, while she's looking at this thing, she hears a low humming, like you mentioned earlier, like a whooshing sound almost. And she asks Jennifer if she can hear it. And when she looks over at Jennifer, she's covering her ears and telling her mom how unbearably loud the noise is. So that was immediately where I was like, what? what the F like you're low humming for the mom unbearably loud for the daughter what's going on here so yeah. you know they're having completely different experiences in terms of hearing the craft and while this is happening Patty starts to feel calm uh, she's collected and the daughter's terrified she she thinks this is a, a threat of some sort while the mom's feeling euphoric and that's where I think that whole idea man of them being able to convey some sort of reaction and emotion out of us while an event is happening. Whatever intelligence is behind it. But um, like you said, that that wasn't kind of the end. That was the initial experience with Patty. Um, You know, sometime later, the daughter, her other daughter, Jessica, she's getting ready for bed one night and she's walking in the hallway of the house and she sees a figure coming out of her younger sister's bedroom. You know, she assumed it was her sister, you know, head into bed, maybe she was in the bathroom or something. But when whatever this thing is that comes into sight, it was not her sister. She described it as being about four feet tall, large head, small body, and um it had large black eyes. So right here you've got kind of the prototypical gray as it were. This is where I started getting really creeped out, man, with this whole story. Um, She went on to say that it had a robe on with a hood, kind of like what Claudette had experienced, and it just stared at her. And it starts slowly moving towards the parents' room. So Jessica freaks out. She goes into her bedroom, gets under the covers, and she doesn't know what to do. You know, she's a kid. She stays underneath. She's scared to death to look. And when she hears her mother's voice... Uh, in the room, she takes the covers off, you know the soothing voice of her mother, and the mother's in there to say good night she 's still too scared to say anything to her mom about it, and she can see this hooded figure walking around her bedroom while the mom is in there silently and Jessica is just petrified at this point she 's frozen she doesn 't know what to do, and finally, her mom kisses her on the forehead, says good night, and goes out of the room and the being just follows the mom out and that was that was it man uh she thought maybe this was some weird dream she'd had but then she started seeing this being in her dreams constantly after that um and this all kind of culminated into a really bad experience for the family. They started having weird poltergeist activity, paranormal stuff happening in the home. And it just got out of control. You know, one time their their electricity went out. The dude comes to fix it. He sees a UFO over the house and tells them he's never coming back. So you have cooperation that something weird is going on in this family's home it really starts to eat away at them the two daughters and the mother stop talking to each other they become very very introverted and it's not good man the mother thinks that whatever's happening is demonic she was Christian and what they decided to do and this is a really other really interesting defense mechanism I guess is to pray uh, they all started praying together for these things to stop happening and for a while that seemed to work they prayed it didn't happen the daughters moved on with their lives but patty is still having some weird experiences at the home and struggling with her spiritual spirituality and whatever the hell is going on in that house above the house and beyond so uh, it's just I don't know what to make of all of it, man. It's it's heartbreaking. It's terrifying. Um, and I, I'm still working with Patty to this day to figure out what the hell is going on out there in Michigan.
2: It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And really is one of the most bizarre cases that I have ever read simply because When you're talking about poltergeist activity, it almost mimics the way that poltergeist activity happened in Point Pleasant with the Mothman thing, minus the really weird telephone calls, but it's... Right, right, the whole
1: injured cold thing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's so strange because, like... It doesn't fit into a box, even for, like, the average UFO research, and and UFOs really don't fit into a box very neatly themselves, but this goes above and beyond that, so damn, man, I had nightmares after reading that.
1: Me too, dude. I don't know how she goes on day to day. And, you know, we do hear, you know, Valet talks about this and many other researchers about that aspect of high strangeness after a UFO event, that it kind of just opens these doors. It lifts the veil. You know, you've now had something that kind of bends your reality, and then it's just the floodgates after that. You know, the, the cryptids are like, oh, I'm coming in. The ghosts are like, let's do this. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, aliens, you got that? Cool. All right, we're going to go in now. We're going to mess around a little bit and then we'll be out. And you don't know if any of this stuff, whether it's the non-human intelligence, the apparitions, the, uh, the high strangeness, like if it even gives a shit about these people, that's another big thing is while it's impacting their lives and changing their lives, it's not always for the better. You know, I talked to people who became very depressed, uh, had to get on meds, started drinking. Um, So it's not always good implications to these things. And it's not brotherly love. I can tell you that much, dude. Uh, But I I don't know. It does not fit into a box. And I think it's meant to be that way.
2: Do you enjoy true stories of the supernatural from the people who experienced it? Well, then you might like my show, Jim Harold's Campfire. Hi, I'm Jim, and we've been doing this show since 2009. And we talk about ghosts, cryptic creatures, UFOs, head scratchers, you name it. And you tune in and you might hear a story like this one.
0: And as he was driving home, he encountered a shadow person who seemed to be dressed like a monk. I know that sounds very strange, um, but it was a solid black form. And it was wearing a hooded cloak tied at the waist with the cloak up. And it had glowing red eyes. He sees this thing coming out of a really teeny abandoned cemetery
2: if you haven't tuned in i hope you'll check us out you can find us on apple podcasts spotify and wherever podcasts are heard it's jim harold's campfire and you can find it at JimHerold.com. thanks so much and stay spooky selling a little or a lot
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: The best way, and I I always bring it up, uh, that anybody has ever talked about to describe what interacting with these uh, intelligences is, is like is like the book Flatland, where it's a three-dimensional world interacting with a two-dimensional world, and it I don't understand how to fully make out what's happening, and, and it's absolutely terrifying. So, kind of shifting a little bit to your experience in this book on a weekend retreat up in my neck of the woods in my hometown. You gave me nightmares again, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just just
1: doing my part, my man. <laughs> I tried to trying to contribute to your uh to your
2: insomnia I appreciate it, man. I I definitely appreciate it. So could you kind of go in a little bit about your weekend up in good old Saranac Lake, New York, and the experience you had there? Sure. I mean,
1: first of all, one of the most beautiful areas I've ever seen. Uh, I've traveled the entire United States. I've been to every state but South Dakota. I'm sorry, South Dakota. (laughs) They literally got nothing going on there for me to go see for any of your listeners who live there i'm so sorry (laughs) that was very mean anyways uh no man i i wanted to really embed myself in this you know kind of like a journalist in a war zone i wanted to become a part of what i was doing and while some journalists may find that irresponsible i think that's really the only way to go so i had the opportunity to spend a weekend with a good buddy of mine, colleague, Mike Cullen. Many know him as the, the owl guy. You know, if you've ever had a UFO experience that has somehow connected with owls or synchronicity, he's the man to turn to. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yep. That being said, Mike also believes he is an abductee. And he, what he wanted to do is get a group of experiencers together. You know, just to have conversation and spend a weekend in an isolated area, which happened to be a bed and breakfast that him and his partner own called the Doctor's Inn, which is a really cool uh cabin right, you know, right near Saranac Lake. And right next to it is an abandoned sanitarium, which is really mm-hmm. creepy. They yep. even, you know, they had some of the doctors stay at the inn at one time. So a lot of weird history there. Um, if we're talking like paranormal and legend tripping, but I- I'm getting, I'm getting off topic. I apologize. Um,
2: no, no, it's all good, man. And actually, where the doctor's inn is, my dad and actually used to work up in that area. Really. Yeah, he used to work for the uh, American Management Association, which is up in that neck of the woods. There.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I got to wander the grounds of the the abandoned place. And uh, ooh, God, I, I wish I had like a psychic there with me. Um, but anyways, yeah, so I decided to... To go there for the weekend and just kind of hear people's stories uh, and put myself in that situation, that vulnerable situation. So we go, uh, my girlfriend and I, God bless her for doing this, and... uh it was awesome, man. It it wasn't like, go, sit, talk about your experience. Mike knew that that's not really how you get to the crux of these things. And I really appreciated that about how he handled the weekend. It was, let's just camp, have dinner, go out, drink some wine, and just kind of kind of let things happen organically. And I noticed that throughout the the three nights I was there, that it would. It would just be on a walk outside in the snow that maybe this one person would tell a story. Or, you know, while we're we're sitting down playing cards or eating dinner, another story comes up. Um, And that's kind of how the weekend went. And I even got to meet a shaman, which was freaking amazing. I'd never met a shaman before. Um, And... What sort of happened is, as the nights progressed, I heard more and more stories, and I began to get a little uncomfortable, and the last night that I was there, I I was in bed, uh, my girlfriend was passed out, it was a long night, and she was exhausted, so she goes to bed, and I talk to Mike and a couple of the others for a little bit, and then I head up to go to sleep, and In the middle of the night, I just start hearing a tapping on the window outside our room. Mind you, I'm three stories up in this building, and there's no trees next to me. So I'm like, oh, it's not a branch. That's immediately what I thought it was. It wasn't hail or snow. It wasn't snowing. Maybe it's an owl, which would have made perfect sense for where I was (laughs) and who I was with. Uh, Right. (laughs) So, you know, maybe that's it. And I don't know. What came over me at that moment, dude, but it was more fear than I've ever felt in my entire life. Even having a UFO sighting. I've had a few paranormal experiences in the past. This was stark fear of, I don't know Where my life is going to go in the next few moments. Everything I've ever believed is going to change. And I genuinely thought I was about to have an abduction experience. And I will be 100% honest with you I am still very, very on the fence with the abduction phenomenon, having it be an actual physical phenomenon. I've spoken to so many individuals, but I am still very on the fence. And I, I, I think that's the right way to go with it. Um, but in that moment, I just remember seeing footsteps, or, you know, feet under my door, you know, in the light outside the room. And... Everyone was asleep at this point. Uh, Mike's cat was locked in, not locked, but closed in his bedroom with him. I'm like, who the hell is outside my door? And what <laughs> is tapping on my window? And I was just terrified. And my girlfriend would not wake up. I tried to wake her up. She's the lightest sleeper you can think of. You know, if I even shift a muscle in bed, she will wake up. She would not wake up. For the life of her at this moment. And I didn't know what to do, man. I literally thought I was about to get abducted. <laughs> so I, I finally had the courage to open the curtain to the window and look out. And that's kind of kind of where it all ended, I guess, for me in terms of that, that night. Um, I did not see an alien outside my window. I did not see a craft. I saw nothing. There was nothing there. And that flood of relief came over me. And uh, I did not get abducted that night. But I can sure as hell tell you that something weird was definitely going on. And no matter what I believe about the abduction phenomenon, or those who've experienced it, I definitely experienced the fear that many of them have had. And I can't even imagine how much more multiplied it was for them than it was for me that night.
2: And that's Kind of interesting because whatever it was, it wanted to get your attention. Yes, absolutely. We're going down the rabbit hole here a little bit, man. Do Why it. do you think it wanted to get your attention? Well, just speculate a little bit. You know, I I I understand that. You know, we can't possibly understand what you know these things are, but if you had to speculate a little,
1: yep. Absolutely, man. I mean, I, I won't go through the whole case, but there's another case of a dude who saw a black triangle over a drive-in movie theater, shut down all the power, hundreds of people saw this, and then disappeared, and no one remembered it happening. They didn't react to it. Um, so, what I think... These intelligence or these UFOs want from us is a reaction of some sort. Some of them are begging to be seen. Look at Phoenix Lights. Look at uh, the O'Hare Airport case. Look at what happened in Texas at one point. I mean, they want to be seen. Some of these things want to be seen. So I do wonder is it to gauge our reaction to them is this sort of a buffer into okay let's give them a little bit let's hang that carrot out there see what they do if you look at like the battle of Los Angeles they see something they fire at it they try to take it down and destroy it Uh, okay we're gonna leave for a little bit we'll come back in 47 um, you know and show ourselves in Washington to to Kenneth Arnold but um, (laughs) let's let's chill for a little bit and then um, come back. So you do have to wonder, you know, is it to gauge a reaction? Is it to see how we interpret what they are? Look at like someone who has an experience and they say it's a religious experience. Look at, you know, going back all the way to what Valet said and what many other sociologists and psychologists have said. Um, Is this like, sort of, is the UFO reminiscent of our anxieties here on Earth? Um, I think it's a huge experiment by many different controllers, and I think they just want to see what the hell we do with it. Um, is it to have a UFO podcast? Is it to uh, <laughs> is it to uh, become an artist and convey your experience through that? Is it to uh, become a musician and sing about UFOs? I don't know. Is it to... Uh, become a teacher and talk about you know god knows what i don't know man i don't know but i think whatever it is it wants to be seen on many of these occasions and it wants to see what the hell we do with that and i think that's really cool it's like the biggest art project of all time
2: that is a fascinating way to look at that man uh god damn you're like changing my perspective here
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I can't pretend that that's like my idea. You know, you look at someone like Greg Bishop, who who's looking at the whole co-creation phenomenon that maybe we have a lot Mm. more to do with this than we think. So are we working in tandem with the phenomenon to create it? Are we a phenomenon to them? It's it's fascinating. Like you said, it's a rabbit hole. And um, again, I I didn't create these ideas or theories. I'm just kind of running with them and trying to look at it. In different ways, and I think that's what you gotta do. You know, physical data, nuts and bolts hasn't done shit for us. So let's kinda look at it other ways and uh let's get weird and crazy.
2: Absolutely, man. I'm I'm totally down for that. So science hasn't totally embraced this phenomenon. Like they haven't other phenomenons. In the book, in Chapter 6, you talk with many scientists about UFOs and and how we can bring a scientific approach to it. What do you think the best approach to this is in terms of science? A a multidisciplinary kind of study, or is this something purely the social sciences have a leg up in? Um, What do you think on that? That's a really good
1: question, man, and I can't pretend to have, like, one answer, but, you know, you've spoken to Chris Cogswell, and his approach, being a scientist, was to look at it both from a hard science standpoint and a soft science standpoint. And again, I I think that's great. There's room for everyone in this. There really is. I mean, UFOs... Their astronomy, their psychology, their their everything in between, their chemistry, their uh, social sciences. It's crazy. We can connect the UFO phenomenon to any of this. In terms of if we're looking at it from kind of a nuts and bolts, data-driven phenomenon, I think some of the people I interviewed in the book are a really good way to go with that. UFO data, um, CubeSat, uh, you've got... um, Trumbull, who's trying to put you know Humvees on the ground <laughs> to be a rapid response mechanism to go out and record a UFO event—that's so incredibly cool to me. I mean, yeah. you know that—that's awesome. And I think I think that works in tandem with these other people looking at it from a more heady space. So. What approach scientifically we can take to it, I, I think we're there. I think we have really cool innovators out there trying to record data, trying to capture photos and radar and everything in between when it comes to the phenomenon. But I think ah, this is sobering to say, I think the phenomenon is always going to be ahead, a step ahead of our technology and our science. And <laughs> we're never truly going to get there. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe someday we'll hit that precipice where the our soft sciences and our hard sciences can come together and be like, boom, UFO mystery solved. Let's go do something else now. But um, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think it's all exciting. I think we can all work together. I think we got to stop scoffing at one another for you're a little too new agey. You're a little too cerebral. You're a little too science based. And let's just all share information and be like, "Oh, that's cool. Let me see if I could put that into this." And I think that's what it's all about: putting the puzzle together.
2: Yeah, definitely an open, an open-minded approach. Like, I think in this age that when we hear the term skeptic it's always meant to be as this blocker from accepting what is actually out there or isn't and uh, i think part of it is uh, is definitely an image issue that we're still kind of trying to work through and at times there are people that are trying to control the perception and in like to to go back to to the stars When, you know, you have an article saying that you have a metal alloy that you're claiming is from a UFO. It's suddenly now a a physical phenomenon. And it seems like it's more complex than that. So I definitely agree with you. I I definitely agree that we need a very open-minded approach to this to fully gauge exactly what's going on. Because it's not as simple as... nuts and bolts kind of thing
1: exactly and even with the whole pentagon ufo program into the stars like yeah we're getting physical data and imagery and videos but we we know full well that the program looked at much weirder things than just that and we're going to be seeing a lot more of that coming forward with skinwalker ranch and whatnot too so it's again dude like i don't think there's one way to look at this and i i applaud to the stars in many ways and i uh i turn my i turn my nose up at them in others but <laughs> 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 but you know use some shakespearean language there as a theater nerd uh yeah yeah I don't, I don't know but i know that we can all work together and um and that's exciting
2: so shifting again here if somebody's coming up to you and they're a skeptic of the UFO phenomenon, or if somebody's like, "I'm kind of interested," what cases would you point them to to kind of wet the whistle and say, you know, there might be something here? I've I've got two for you if
1: you're down for it. Yeah, go go ahead, man. Cool. So yeah, I mean i I often veer towards pilot witness cases because there's usually like we said earlier the most data documentation and i do think those things are important not the approach i'm really taking right now but um you know there's the japan airlines case of 87 that's a good one um you recently spoke about the thomas mantel case which is awesome um you covered it so well but i'd i'd have to say i do have two favorite pilot cases that still give me chills uh the first one was the uh the Carlos de Santos case of 75. Do you know about this one? No, I don't. Uh, this this one is great. I covered this on episode five of Somewhere in the Skies really early on in my podcasting days. And um, I had Ruben Uriarte on who, who looks at cases out of Mexico, out of the Southwest. And I had never heard of this case either. And it blew me away that I really started looking into it so so this happened in seventy five uh, Carlos de Santos was heading back to mexico city he 's in a small piper plane that he owned, and he sees three disc-shaped objects that begin to follow him. Uh, very reminiscent, kind of, of Kenneth Arnold, but much, much closer in proximity. Uh, the objects, they surround his plane, and one of the objects hits his fuselage, and it sends the plane kind of into a, a controlled dive. It affected his his aircraft so he radios the closest tower makes a distress call and this is all caught on audio mind you you can listen to this distress call it's in oh, the God. episode episode <laughs> five is somewhere in the skies if again you want to stay up a little later at night and have some nightmares man check that out um <laughs> so the objects you know as he's making this call mayday mayday i'm i'm out of control this is what's happening uh, i what's help me help me um The objects finally start to separate, and they head towards a a volcano, of all things, a mountainous volcano in the distance, and disappear. Um, So (laughs) Santos lands and reports what had happened— so, immediately, he's put under psych- psychiatric watch. Um, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, dude, he comes out on the other side of it completely, f- like, okay. They're like, oh, he's fine. What he says he saw, we legitimately think he saw. And he's, he's okay. And what was also really interesting is, uh, you know, sometime later, the radar operators at the tower that he made the distress call at, they both swore under oath that they saw the objects surround his aircraft and then disappear and that they were captured on radar. Um, so this is an extremely well-documented case corroborated and I, I, I love it. I love it. Santos still talks about it up until today and hasn't changed his story one bit. So that was a really interesting one. And, uh, I would say the other one would have to be the Tehran case, which I could definitely run through if you want, but if your listeners know it well enough, that one's amazing as well
2: no definitely man run run right through it for us oh sure I'll try to do the uh the express route
1: on this one. <laughs> this happened a uh, year later this was seventy six um You know, I actually got off my lazy ass and made a Freedom of (laughs) Information Act request for this one. (laughs) And I did. I got some documentation on it, uh, thanks to my friend John Greenwald. He told me, over at the Black Vault, told me how to properly do this so that I could actually get stuff. Um, And the reason there was documentation is because the U.S. military was involved with this case. Uh, I'll get into that. They, uh i I got this stuff, and um what what it sort of told me was that in seventy six the iranian air force they'd they'd gotten reports of a huge luminous object over the city, kind of like the battle of l a and they they had to go investigate it, you know? This thing was over the entire city. Hundreds of reports coming in. So they send up a fighter jet to investigate. And as the first jet starts to get close to whatever this lighted object is, all of its instruments and equipment start to malfunction. Pilot kind of freaks out. He's like, oh, shit. He starts heading back to, to the base. And this time... Parviz Trafari, he is the general at the base. He's like, I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna go up there and investigate <laughs> and see what the heck's going on. Um, so he goes up there, and he gets even closer to what this thing is. And he actually sees what it is. And he reported seeing a multicolored diamond-shaped object, and it was huge. Like, jumbo jet-sized huge. And he starts to move a little bit closer, tries to make contact with it. He's getting nothing. And then, out of this massive object, another smaller object descends and starts to head towards Jafari. So... What's going on with this? Jafari, he he starts to try to lock in on the object, like, uh dude, what are you doing? <laughs> his weaponry, his instruments, they start to malfunction and he can't use them. And the thing's starting to move towards him. So he he makes a U-turn and goes into defense mode and starts a negative G dive to try to try to outmaneuver this thing. He's having a cat and mouse game with a ufo in midair dude this this just kind of blew my mind and whatever the object is it gets a lock on him and he freaks out he's able to make another negative nose dive negative g nose dive and outmaneuvers it again and gets a lock on the object but right when he does the object disappears out of sight and he hears this loud explosion like it had crash landed or something So, if that was not dramatic enough, he goes back to base, he reports what had happened, and the next morning, he and a bunch of the Iranian military go out to where supposedly this explosion happened, and they investigate. They start speaking to witnesses, and nobody saw anything, but they did hear the explosion. Nothing was ever found, no object, nothing like that. But What I found most interesting was that apparently the DIA, the NSA, and the CIA in America, they all got involved because our jets were being leased to the Iranian Air Force at this time. You know, they wanted to know what the hell this thing was that was outmaneuvering our technology. Um, So there's a bunch of documentation from these intelligence agencies about this event. And Jafari, he spoke about this entire thing at the National Press Club in 2007, and he's very outspoken about it. He's he spoke about it up until his uh, unfortunate passing, not too long ago, maybe a few months ago even. So, oh uh, God, these two cases, these are the ones I would tell any amateur UFO researcher, anyone just interested, to look into in terms of documentation, radar. Pilots and legitimacy for sure. So I hope that serves some purpose to your listeners.
2: I'm sure it will, man. Absolutely. Kind of pivoting a little bit here. If you had to direct these people to maybe a book or two, what books would you recommend for them?
1: So, I know Jafari's entire event is logged in Leslie Keene's book, UFOs. That is definitely one I recommend everyone go look at. If you're looking for government, military, and pilot accounts of UFOs, again, some of the most documented cases out there, um, she has them tell all their stories in their own words. That that is probably one of the top ones, I would say. Also, anything by Jacques Vallée, someone who looked at the phenomenon quite differently, looked at it from a very cultural stance, psychological stance, and... uh it's just an all-around amazing individual. Uh, and again, if you're looking for more of a scientific approach, anything by our UFO dad, Mr. Hynek, <laughs> is the way to go. Um, definitely the way to go. But yeah, there, there's many ways to go in terms of UFO books and documentaries, but I, I think a lot of the work being done by Jeremy Corbell in the film industry on UFOs is pretty awesome. And uh, anything by Hynek, by Valet, and uh, some of the younger people out there. Jason McClellan uh, of Rogue Planet has a really good book called <laughs> you, uh, I, I forget the exact title but it's like Only Weirdos See UFOs um, yep. <laughs> which kind of sheds the ridicule factor. It's not true that Only Weirdos See UFOs. So that's a good primer for anyone looking to, to look at some of the cases and to see what's out there in UFO history and really get you into a good headspace to start looking at this crazy stuff we do
2: yeah absolutely and one that i'm definitely gonna keep on people's radars is the one that um not out yet, but the uh, the one that M.J. Bonias is working on definitely seems, t- it's going to be fascinating for sure.
1: It's going to be unlike anything I think we've seen before. Again, M.J.'s a philosophical person, and he's really looking at the culture of ufology, which I think is very fascinating and says a lot about it, and I think influences the phenomenon itself. So I can't wait to see what he comes up with.
2: Yeah. when in the pre-order link comes up, I'm there. I'm totally there. <laughs> One click, Amazon, done. That, absolutely. Um, so from your book, Somewhere in the Skies, comes the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. How did that come about? What inspired you to get in the podcasting game?
1: i had been listening to podcasts for so long. Uh, Jim Harold's Paranormal Podcast was my first endeavor into that world. I've been listening ever since. And I love it, man. I think it's a medium that is is really booming and is the future. Of both journalism, of radio, of broadcasting, and anyone can do it. Look at how many podcasts there are out there. It's ridiculous. You could find one on anything, anything you could possibly think of, there's a podcast about. Um, and I. I got involved by co hosting another show, um, Into the Frey Radio with Shannon LeGros. And that was a dive into worlds I'd never been in cryptids, ghosts, paranormal. And I, I approached Shannon and I was like, I loved the work you did with, uh, Sasquatch Chronicles and, um, looking into Bigfoot and stuff. That's something I don't know much about. I want to know more. Like, I'd love to, like, maybe hash it out with you. And if you ever want any info on UFOs, I'd love to share that with you. And she said, why don't you come on? Why don't we like do this together and learn from each other? I'll learn about UFOs. You can learn about cryptids. So I did that for over 50 episodes or so of Into the Fray Radio. And the more and more I did it, the more and more I enjoyed the process of interviewing people, of doing the research and getting it Out on a platform that I'd never really thought of, and that was, you know, over the internet podcasting. So I took the leap. And I I wanted to do one just on UFOs, my bag, my specialty, and I, that's when the idea of continuing somewhere in the skies, the book in podcast form, and and do the show, man. And I I had no idea how it was going to go. Uh, I was terrified, and um, <laughs> but the response has been amazing, and you know it's growing every week, and uh, I've made so much. So many contacts and incredible friends and colleagues through that, including yourself. And we're kind of, you know, we're, we're all there for one another, all the podcasts. It's a family, it's a community and a community I love. And that supports one another. The UFO field is very divisive. The paranormal field can be often very divisive as well. People backbiting and and arguing, uh, I don't find that in the podcasting world. I'm sure it's out there. But for you and me, man, and other podcasts out there on the UFO topic, uh, we're just trying to share information and be there for one another. And I think that's what's really cool. And I just I look forward to what you're doing and where Somewhere in the Skies goes and how we can all work together.
2: When I decided, hey, I'm going to do a podcast, I'd done podcasts. Okay, you you, you do what you're passionate about. You just bring it to the table. And one of the most fascinating aspects of doing a podcast is how supportive the community is how everybody pretty much holds each other up and shares all the information. And and it's definitely been one of the best parts of this, the whole process. And you definitely kind of gave me the, that little confidence booster when you had me on your show. So <laughs> uh, it's been great, man, you know, and, and I can't wait to see what both of us do down the line, you know? Yeah,
1: man, we're either we're either going to change ufology, or we're going to uh, become hermits and <laughs> and get our tinfoil hats professionally made. I don't know, but I'm ready, and I'm so happy to have you along on that journey with me.
2: Absolutely, man! So great to meet all these great people, including yourself, and and so many others, MJ Benias and Mike DeMonte and and so many others. Yep. So, last question. What do you hope that people take away from your book the most? I hope that they they come away
1: asking questions of me, of the phenomenon, of the witnesses, because again... These are just stories, and I know that. I knew that full well going into it, that people are going to—they're going to call me out on that. Like, I have no proof that any of these stories actually happened. I don't have physical data. I don't have evidence. Uh, these are stories. But I can tell you right now, man, I firmly believe that everyone in my book is telling me the truth, that they believe these events happened to them. Whether they happened in the reality that we all perceive, I don't know. But— I think it's most important that we hear each other out, because that can be closure enough for people who have these profound, traumatic, dramatic, emotional events happen in their lives. And I just hope that even one person who reads the book, who may have had an experience and never talked about it, can now do that with someone and can get their voice out there. Because again, that's one more case we can be like, hey, look at this, this person who had this experience. It becomes normal, and then that's when we, we keep moving forward, getting it out to the mainstream, and then we can start looking at it through many, many more eyes. So, yeah, just keep focusing on the, the individuals having the experiences, and I think we're going to be in a good place to move forward uh, as the
2: human race. I 100% agree, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it a ton and it's been an honor having you here
1: alright that's it for this week's UFO happy hour with Rob Kristofferson. you can follow his show Our Strange Skies on Twitter at Our Strange Skies simple enough and you can follow us on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and on Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod if you haven't already please take a few moments to rate and review Somewhere in the Skies on Apple Podcasts or on any of your Android apps Ratings and reviews and subscriptions help gain us visibility and find us new listeners. Thank you in advance. All past episodes, news articles, and contact information can be found at the official website, com. Thank you, as always, to the E1 Podcast Network, KGRA Radio, and Rogue Planet. But especially, thank you to you for listening. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground. But never stop searching somewhere in the sky.
0: Produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit Entertainment One Podcast.com.
2: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.